Happy holidays and welcome to the Jeremiah Patterson Show. I'm Isaiah. And I'm Caleb. This is a TJPN special report. We hope, hope you enjoy the show. Now here's your host, Jeremiah Patterson. Hey, this is Brendan Brown from the Brendan Brown's Clutches of Facts and Theories podcast show. I'm personally a friend with Jeremiah Patterson, and I really want to tell you, sit back and relax and enjoy the show. From the January 6th insurrection, the Biden presidency, ending America's longest war, voting rights, violence against Asian Americans, and much more. We're going to take you back through it all. Let's get started. We're going to begin tonight with the assault on democracy. This year started with former President Donald Trump pressing election officials to help him overturn the results. You may remember the first Sunday of the new year, we covered one of those major attempts here on the show. Amy Gardner at the Washington Post has just broken um, this bombshell story. She's reporting today exclusively that President Donald Trump pressured the Secretary of State in Georgia to overturn the results of that election. She was the first to report this, and since then it has been corroborated by other news organizations. We have won this election in Georgia based on all of this. And there's, there's nothing wrong with, with saying that, Brad. You know, I mean, having, the, having a correct... You, the people of Georgia are angry. And these numbers are going to be repeated on Monday night, along with others that we're going to have by that time, which are much more substantial even. And the people of Georgia are angry. The people of the country are angry. And there's nothing wrong with saying that you know, uh, that you've recalculated. All I want to do is this. I just want to find uh, 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state. That is how the year started. That was from uh, the TJPS archives, January 3rd, 2021. Three days later, the certification of the presidential election transpired. Intentions were extremely high that day. Now it is up to Congress to confront this egregious assault on our democracy. And after this, we're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want, but I think right here, we're going to walk down to the Capitol. And we're going to cheer on our brave senators and congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them. Because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Quote, you have to show strength and you have to be strong. Uh, that was at the time President Donald Trump encouraging his supporters to walk to the Capitol. In that same speech, he also told his supporters to, quote, we have to fight like hell, end quote. His supporters took that seriously, and this is what happened as a result. This is reporting from Inside Edition. It's the storming of the Capitol. Trump supporters forcing their way into the halls of Congress. Remarkable scenes unfolding on live TV. I can see at least half a dozen protesters scaling, literally climbing. 
the walls of the Capitol to get up to where their fellow protesters are. They broke the glass in the United States Capitol, and now they are climbing through the window. Stunned TV anchors can't believe what they're seeing. Exactly what just happened there. And they ushered Mike Pence out. They moved him fast. There was, I saw the motions too. It is an absolutely shameful, disgusting situation that we are witnessing here. Oh my gosh. It looked like a woman, um, very gravely injured, covered in blood. The mob smashed through doors and set off fire extinguishers. These guys chased a Capitol Police officer up the stairs. Some even made their way onto the Senate floor. This guy sat in the speaker's chair. Could you ever imagine seeing that in America? Capitol Police barricaded the doors of the chamber with a cabinet, their guns drawn as the invaders try to break in. Congressmen and women took cover under their desks. We were just told that there has been tear gas in the rotunda and we're being instructed uh, to each of us get uh, gas masks that are under our seats. From a recall election in California to threats against election officials, 2021 was horrific. Time's running out, Richard. We're coming after you and every mother that stole this election with our Second Amendment. Subpoenas be damned. You're going to be served lead, you fucking, fucking enemy communist sucker. You will be served lead. We had... Uh, armed almost rioters in Maricopa County. We had uh, Alex Jones and the Q Shaman literally arm in arm shouting my name and shouting for other election officials in the parking lot. And their compatriots armed uh, with, uh, with some pretty heavy duty firearms. And that was certainly no civil act of protest. That was not a grievance. The presence of those weapons in this environment was a threat. And that was very difficult. It was a step away from what happened here. The motivation behind these threats is the lie. That needs to end. What we're going through is very much uh, the same um, as what happened here, uh, except for they're coming to our homes and uh, they're making us very uncomfortable. Uh, some of my colleagues have been shot at simply because of what we do. Uh, all of us have been threatened. It's unfair that we're attacked for doing our job. I feel afraid. I feel afraid. I know that I'm going to get some kind of repercussion from just sitting here today. But I decided to do it because I believe in the right to vote. Quote, I know I will get some repercussions from sitting here today, but I decided to do it because I believe in the right to vote. End quote. Those were election officials testifying to Congress earlier this year. At the top there, you heard a vile threat against an election official. So threats against election officials has been a reoccurring theme of 2021. Democracy under attack, dangerous lies about an election purging of political leadership for telling the truth and a deadly insurrection that happened just six days into the new year. We've got more to come tonight on this TJPS holiday special. Stay with us.
Kamala Davy Harris, do solemnly swear. I, Joseph Robinette Biden Jr., do solemnly swear. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States. Against. That I will faithfully execute. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Office of President of the United States. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I take this obligation freely that I take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion that I will well and faithfully discharge that I will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office on which I am about to enter the duties of the office upon which I am about to enter and will to the best of my ability will to the best of my ability preserve protect and defend Preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. The Constitution of the United States. So help you God. So help me God. So help me God. So help me God. Congratulations, Mr. Thank President. Inauguration Day 2021 gave many Americans a reprieve from the chaotic four years we endured under the Trump administration, but becoming the nation's new leaders was not easy, from lies about the election to an insurrection, as I was talking about at the top of the show. From the day he swore to uphold and defend the Constitution of the United States, Joe Biden knew that he had a lot to accomplish and work on. A ravaging pandemic, racial justice in the United States, white supremacy, saving democracy, and also domestic terrorism here at home, uniting the nation, confirming judges, cabinet members, and passing legislation in a hyper-partisan and divided Congress to support the Build Back Better agenda. That's just to name a few of the administration's priorities. Cases in the nation at the time were just sky high in terms of the coronavirus pandemic with hospitals full, the vaccine rollout still struggling from the prior administration, and the continual of masks as our daily attire. Under the Biden administration, we've seen the Delta variant, we've um, which has caused mass death, soaring hospitalizations, and rising cases. Now we are dealing with the Omicron variant, which is more transmissible than Delta. Vice President Harris taking Vice President Kamala Harris taking foreign trips overseas to bolster the United States in terms of foreign relations. Just recently with France. Also, we've had Vice President Harris talk about voting rights. Vice President Harris promoting the Build Back Better bill. Also, the major infrastructure legislation that passed in Congress this year, boostering the president's agenda. Also, promoting essentially one of the major key parts in that legislation, which is stopping um, lead pipe. For water in terms of children getting sick and other adults as well. I mean, just absolutely crucial year in terms of the Biden administration. Also having the first LGBTQ member confirmed to the United States cabinet, Pete Buttigieg becoming the secretary of transportation, Deb Holland becoming the first female secretary of interior, the first Native American to become the secretary of interior in a presidential cabinet. Given our nation's history, that does seem fitting. Also, as well as the first Latino to lead the United States Department of Homeland Security, Alejandro Mayorkas. It has been an absolutely influential year in terms of presidential politics under the Biden administration. We also have Marsha Fudge as the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, the first black person, the first black woman to lead that department. 
The Secretary of Treasury right now in the United States is Janet Yellen, the first female to lead that department. The Deputy White House Secretary, Corrine Jean-Pierre, is the first LGBTQ member um, to ever essentially give a press conference, to hold a press conference at the White House uh, earlier this year. She is the Deputy White House Press Secretary. We've also had the EPA Director this year, Michael S. Reagan, who is the first Black person to lead that department. The Secretary of Defense right now is Lloyd Austin. He's the first black person to ever lead the United States Defense Department. So definitely lots of firsts this year in terms of racial diversity and just just major influential changes within the presidential cabinet and high profile positions um, in D.C. under the Biden administration. Although there have been lots of successes under the Biden administration in terms of lots of judges confirmed as well, there have also been lots of failures and there have also been lots of things in the news that have transpired under the Biden administration that garnered international headlines. Here are just a few. President Biden touched on immigration during his first ever address to a joint session of Congress last night. He called on lawmakers to help end the war over immigration by passing reform. He specifically noted securing protections for dreamers. The president did not talk about what's being done to address the record number of unaccompanied minors illegally crossing the southern border. Tonight, just feet from the U.S., hundreds of migrant families are at this tent camp in Tijuana as the Biden administration restarts one of former President Trump's controversial immigration policies. The Biden administration defending its actions on the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, insisting their hands were tied by the previous administration. As the chaotic situation in Afghanistan deteriorates, big questions just how and where the system failed and why the U.S. got, got off guard about the country's rapid collapse to Taliban rule. This is we're seeing images of people desperate to leave the country, climbing onto planes like this one in the hopes of getting them on board. Now, for the second day in a row, President Biden canceled plans to travel to his home in Wilmington, Delaware. The president met with his national security team at the White House about the evolving situation in Afghanistan. That rapidly deteriorating situation in Afghanistan is a major challenge for the Biden administration. In early July, President Biden spoke to reporters about the withdrawal of U.S. troops defending the decision. Take a look. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. As the U.S. departs, the U.N. reports that civilian casualties are at a record high, up nearly 50 percent over the same six-month period a year ago. Meanwhile, on the battlefield, the Taliban's grip on the country continues to grow. They now control about half of Afghanistan's district centers. Let's take a look at this map. The bright red areas on these maps show just how much territory the Taliban has taken. My fellow Americans, the war in Afghanistan is now over. I'm the fourth president who has faced the issue of whether and when to end this war. When I was running for president, I made a commitment to the American people that I would end this war. Today, I've honored that commitment. It was time to be honest with the American people again. That was the choice, the real choice, between leaving or escalating. And I want to start by acknowledging how tired, worried, and frustrated I know you are. I know how you're feeling. For many of you, this will be the first or even the second Christmas where you look across the table, be an empty kitchen chair there. Tens of millions have gotten sick. We've all experienced upheaval in our lives. But while COVID has been a tough adversary, 
we've shown that we're tougher. Tougher because we have the power of science and vaccines that prevent illness and save lives. And tougher because of our resolves. At the moment it arrived as a nation where we face deep racial inequities in America and system, systemic racism that has plagued our nation for far, far too long. I said that over the course of the past year that the blinders have been taken off the nation, the American people. What, what many Americans didn't see or had simply refused to see couldn't be ignored any longer. Those uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds that took George Floyd's life opened the eyes of millions of Americans and millions of people around all over the world. Tonight, less than 48 hours ahead of that high-stakes summit with Russian President Vladimir Putin, President Biden calling him a worthy adversary and delivering this warning. If he chooses not to cooperate and acts in a way that he has in the past relative to cybersecurity and some other activities, then we will respond. The president also denouncing Putin's crackdown of his political opponents when asked what would happen if high-profile Putin critic Alexei Navalny died in a Russian jail. It would be a tragedy. It would do nothing but hurt his relationships with the rest of the world, in my view, and with me. President Biden is facing pressure to act after Russian hackers claimed credit for a massive ransomware attack, including on American companies. It seems now to be so devastatingly regular, yet more extreme weather. Multiple states of emergency declared, records broken again. Watching all this, as well as the flooding in the south and the huge fires in the west, President Biden, he addressed the multiple weather events from the White House. The past few days of Hurricane Ida and the wildfires in the west and the unprecedented flash floods in New York and New Jersey is yet another reminder that these extreme storms and the climate crisis, crisis are here. Lots has transpired under this administration. Lots has happened this year. Some of our other segments we have coming up next are interconnected with things that have transpired in the administration this year. We've got those coming up next. Stay with us on this holiday special. The climate crisis played a major role this year, from an unexpected freeze in Texas and other parts of the nation, scorching hot summers, a devastating hurricane season, raging wildfires and ice glaciers breaking. This is reporting from our show this year along with other news outlets. A new report from the CDC about the brain-eating amoeba, which indicates that it is spreading faster here in the United States. I've actually read the report, and I will admit I am not a scientist, and the report is very perplexing. Um, but essentially, this amoeba is spreading rapidly because of climate change. The United Nations um, also says that we could hit a climate change milestone by 2024. In Spain, a peculiar event has just happened. It has just snowed. And why you're thinking, yes, why is that peculiar? That is a great thing. It is not. Uh, here's someone explaining it. Here's a resident in Spain actually explaining it and why that is not a good thing. Quote, 
I don't want to be a Grinch, but this is my patio in Madrid, Spain today. Snow is nice, but this is far from normal. I've never seen this in Madrid in my life. Neither my parents. Climate change is real, and it's scary. End quote. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, and uh, today he spoke with French President Emmanuel Macron. Among the topics they discussed on that phone call was climate change. On Thursday, Reuters reported about um, U.S. climate envoy John Kerry. Quote, U.S. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry said on Thursday, uh, measures to tackle climate change needed to be ramped up significantly and achieving net zero global carbon emissions by 2050 would require a radical transformation of the economy. End quote. Also on Thursday uh, last week, Andrew Friedman at the Washington Post reported that the Southern Ocean um, is essentially warming faster, which threatens ice in the Atlantic, excuse me, in the Antarctic. Earlier this week, President Joe Biden took major executive action on climate change. This was news reporting from Sky News. For more than a century, the nodding donkeys of America's West have told the story of this country's thirst for oil. There are many who believe these landmarks of the fossil fuel boom should be consigned to history. Among them, Joe Biden, wielding his executive order pen again to undo more of his predecessor's legacy and putting climate change at the heart of his presidency. In my view, we've already waited too long to deal with this climate crisis. We can't wait any longer. Uh, we see it with our own eyes, we feel it, we know it in our bones, and it's time to act. This is where one of those orders will be felt the most. Half of New Mexico's billion-dollar oil revenue comes from drilling on public land, something that will now be restricted. We are continuing to follow reports this week of massive winter storms almost just all over the country. Um, specifically in the north, we are starting to see these pop up in the south as well. It is a scary story. Uh, there are millions without power in Texas and parts of Louisiana, Oklahoma, all up and down the spine, if you will, of the Midwest. The mayor of a town in Texas is now the former mayor after telling his constituents to quit their griping about the cold weather and the lack of electricity. Mayor Tim Boyd of Colorado City posted a nasty message on Facebook telling suffering Texans, no one owes you or your family anything, nor is it the local government's responsibility to support you during trying times like this. Sink or swim, it's your choice. And that wasn't all. He went in deeper, adding the city and county, along with power providers or any other service, owes you nothing. I'm sick and tired of people looking for a darn handout. Only the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Senator Ted Cruz, he is now facing a whole lot of questions after he was spotted on a plane traveling to Cancun, Mexico, in the midst of this unfolding crisis in his home state of Texas. If you go on social media, you will see social media users posting multiple pictures of the senator and his family in the Houston airport waiting to board their flight. Tonight, record-breaking heat and a lack of rainfall are threatening to paralyze the country's western half. I trust most of my colleagues have heard of Hot Girl Summer and the broader Megan the Stallion oeuvre. Well, I rise today to declare the start of Hot Furk Summer. Hot Girl Summer ain't about degrees, but Hot Furk Summer most definitely is. With Furk, of course, being the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Why, you might ask? Well, to paraphrase Miss Stallion, because now that Furk has put in all that work, 
it's time for them to be the MVP. Now, some might say that FERC isn't, uh, dare I say, hot enough to warrant that attention. But for those of us who are serious about fighting the climate crisis, they sure should be. The Commission ensures our energy markets, generation and transmission are operating and providing us with affordable, reliable energy. But the best kept secret of all is that FERC is absolutely key to achieving our clean energy goals and a zero carbon economy. Have you seen this? Uh, this was just uh, the Gulf of Mexico on fire just um, weeks ago. If you are listening to me through the podcast, go online and you will see footage of this. Uh, now this horrific sight happened because of a leak in an underwater pipeline. This created an eye of fire. The IPCC uh, recently just published a damning report on the climate crisis, 10 years in the making. This report issued a code red for humanity. In Greenland, ice the size of Florida just melted in a single day. In China, they just had three years' worth of rain in a week. South Madagascar is currently on the brink of famine due to drought, as many are dying from hunger. Germany just had a huge storm, causing the worst flooding there in, a in centuries. The west coast of the United States and Turkey are battling wildfires, as many deal with extreme drought in some of the hottest days ever recorded. Skies in California looking dark red just as they did last year, giving off apocalyptic vibes. Also, the damage from Hurricane Ida, which was a Category 5 that shifted rapidly, causing mass destruction. Over the years, there has been a clear and consistent message about climate change, and that is we must act now before it is too late. There's been so much political fighting about this issue, and it has it used to be a bipartisan issue for the sake of preserving and protecting our environment. That is unfortunately not the case anymore. We don't need to argue about climate change. We don't need to argue about this or if it's really happening. We have already diagnosed the problem. Now we have to solve it. There was a woman named uh, Norma McCorvey, and in 1969, uh, she was in her early 20s, and she sought to get an abortion because of an unwanted pregnancy. She grew up under difficult and financially uh, troubled circumstances. Prior to this pregnancy, she was she gave birth to two other children, and she gave those children up for adoption. At the time of her pregnancy in 1969, abortion was legal in the state of Texas, but they also had one of the most restrictive and vitriolic anti-abortion laws in the nation. Even if you were a victim of rape or incest, there was no, there was no exception. Now, you could legally travel out of the state of Texas or to another country to get an abortion that was safe and legal or pay a large fee to a U.S. doctor for a secret procedure. But like many women, McCarvey did not have that luxury. Many women around, the time, around that time resorted to illegal and very dangerous back alley or self-induced abortions. Many died from this, and McCarvey was one of those women who was just unsuccessful in that effort. And so she was referred to two Texas attorneys who were challenging anti-abortion laws already. In court documents, they, they refer to their new client, Norma McCorvey, um, as Jane Roe. And they were going after someone who had taken prosecutorial actions against doctors who performed abortions in Dallas County, Texas. This is where McCorvey lived. And the district attorney that they were going after to sue and to stop him from continuing these prosecutorial actions against doctors who performed abortions in Dallas County, Texas, that district attorney was Henry Wade. 
They filed a lawsuit against Mr. Wade on behalf of uh, Roe and all the other women, quote, who were or might become pregnant and want to consider all options, end quote. Henry Wade wasn't just this like obscure guy in Texas who was just randomly suing doctors for for performing abortions, he made quite an esteemed reputation for himself. Back in 1964, he became nationally prominent after prosecuting Jack Ruby, uh, the person who shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald, which was the assassin of President John F. Kennedy. So Henry Wade was quite high profile, and in June of 1920, as a result of that lawsuit, a Texas district court ruled that the state's abortion ban was illegal and it violated the constitutional right to privacy. Nevertheless, Wade was relentless. He kept going after every doctor who performed abortions in Dallas County, Texas. So the case moved up, and it moved up, until it got appealed to the United States Supreme Court, where a 7-2 ruling made history and changed everything. Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered unconstitutional. More on the story from George Herman. In two related cases and eight separate opinions, the nine justices made abortion largely a private matter and ordered the states to make no laws forbidding it, except possibly during the final months. The court split seven to two with Justices Byron White and William Rehnquist dissenting. In effect, the court makes abortion subject only to the decision of the pregnant woman's doctor. It ruled that states may make no laws restricting a doctor's right to decide his patient needs an abortion and to carry out that abortion during the first three months of a pregnancy. After that comparatively safe three-month period, abortions may be regulated, but not prohibited by state law and for the benefit of the mother's health alone. Abortion is somewhat more dangerous at this stage, and states may insist, for example, that they be performed in regulated hospitals. Only in the final stages of pregnancy may states intervene and say no to abortion. The court's decision, written by Justice Blackmun, thus sets limits on the right to abortion on demand. One limit is the time when doctors believe the fetus may be able to survive outside the mother's womb. At that point, usually in the seventh month of pregnancy, the state may take legal action to protect the unborn child, even forbidding abortion except to protect the mother. That was reporting from CBS News on January 22nd, 1973. The opening is from an episode recorded back in October on abortion rights. I explained the history of abortion in the United States, in that part specifically the history of Roe v. Wade. Well, we do have some breaking news on that front. Sarah Weddington, one of the lawyers who argued Roe v. Wade, the landmark abortion case before the U.S. Supreme Court, has died at the age of 76. According to the Associated Press, a former student and a colleague, uh, she died peacefully Sunday in her sleep at her home in Austin, Texas. After the Supreme Court's historical ruling in 1973, Miss Weddington went on to write a book about it and gave many lectures as well as teaching courses at the University of Texas at Austin and Texas Women's University in Leadership. Reportedly, she remained active in both the political and legal fields well into her life. Recently attending a ceremony in 2019 meant to safeguard abortion rights in New York State. Once again, this news breaking as abortion rights have been under attack this year. This Here's a montage of just some news reports on abortion. Tonight, out. 
outrage in Texas. It's going to be nearly impossible for folks to access the care that they need. Protest over what is now the most restrictive abortion law in the country, going into effect after the U.S. Supreme Court did not act on opponents' request to block it. Bill that I'm about to sign that ensures that the life of every unborn child who has a heartbeat will be saved from the ravages of abortion. Passed by the legislature in May, it forbids abortion in Texas after cardiac activity is detected, typically around six weeks before many women know they're pregnant. So today, Coloradans rally against that law at the state capitol. Denver 7's Patrick Perez talks to people on both sides saying women may now come to Colorado for care. The Texas State Capitol may be 900 miles from Colorado's, but the decisions made within it can send shockwaves as far as Denver. How can you be pro-life but force a rape victim to have her rapist baby? Women's rights advocates on Saturday gathered at the Texas Capitol along with hundreds of other locations across the United States in support of reproductive freedom. Just eight days after this Texas abortion law went into effect, Mexico's Supreme Court unanimously voted to make abortion legal. It's ironic as just north of Mexico here in Texas, an effective ban on abortion has begun. We've got more to come tonight. Stay with us. There should be no man, no priest or politician, no doctor or any hospital administrator, no government official or husband, who should have the right to force any woman to have a child against her will. I think that the time is here now that we as women must fight the established restrictions that exist on a woman's right to control her own reproductive processes. And that this is a right that no state should be allowed to abridge. This year, violence against Asian Americans grabbed major headlines. It began last year after the pandemic began. Former President Donald Trump referred to the coronavirus as the, quote, China virus, end quote. Even after leaving office, his words still rung in the ears of many domestic terrorists and extremists, as the damage had already been done. There is news tonight about the growing incidence of racist and often violent attacks against Asian Americans in this country. Asian Americans are facing discrimination not felt since the Japanese-American internment camps during World War II. High unemployment and boycotts of businesses have ravaged their communities. As Weijia Zhang reports, there is also a disturbing trend of racist attacks. Oh my God. These are the kinds of attacks Asian Americans have faced this year. Every disease has ever came from China, homie. Everything comes from China. It's just disgusting. I don't think that there had ever been a time where I was scared or fearful of my life because of my race. 26-year-old Victor Yang says he will never forget that day in March when a bike ride with his girlfriend on these familiar Maryland trails ended with a frantic call for help. DC 911. I uh, ran out on the bike trail. I had these kids chasing us, wearing rocks. Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! What was shocking was these individuals kept on following us, then taunting us, saying, 
coronavirus or COVID-19. What happened to Yang is one of over 2,800 hate incidents reported against Asian Americans across the country since the pandemic started seven months ago. A nearly 845% increase compared to all the reported cases in the last three years combined. What are you doing in this country? What am I doing in this country? Oh, you look at this. This, this What am I doing in this country? Yeah. What am I doing in this country? I'm an American citizen. Asian American hate is as old as American history. 83-year-old actor and civil rights advocate George Takei was four years old when Pearl Harbor was attacked in 1941. And overnight, this country was swept up by suspicion and fear and naked, outright hatred. We had nothing to do with Pearl Harbor. There was no charge other than looking like this. So it's no surprise to Takei that Asian Americans today are shouldering blame for the coronavirus. Americans said we don't want you here. That's why we elected President Trump. Especially, he says, since the attacks are starting from the top. We have political leadership that is using that and constantly using the term Chinese virus. I would like to begin by announcing some important developments in our war against the Chinese virus. President Trump first publicly said the phrase Chinese virus to describe COVID-19 on March 18th. Five days later, he crossed out the language from his prepared remarks, declaring this instead. It's very important that we totally protect our Asian American community in the United States and all around the world. But as the pandemic worsened, he resurrected the rhetoric. The surveillance video is simply chilling. A suspected gunman walks into Young's Asian massage, the first stop on his deadly rampage. Later, the chaotic aftermath, police rushing to the door, others watching in disbelief. Lost in the carnage, eight lives, an army veteran, a newlywed, a business owner. Vicious hate crimes against Asian Americans who've been attacked, harassed, blamed, and scapegoated. At this very moment, so many of them, our fellow Americans, they're on the front lines of this pandemic trying to save lives. And still, still, they're forced to live in fear for their lives just walking down streets in America. It's wrong, it's un-American, and it must stop. Rare moment of bipartisanship in Washington yesterday. The president signed legislation that aims to combat the recent rise in hate crimes, particularly against Asian Americans. The bill got overwhelming support from both chambers of Congress. The president called hatred and racism the ugly poison that has long haunted our nation. I mean, there is a clear and consistent message here, and that is if you see something, say something or do something. Please, because that's really the only way we're going to resolve this situation. We've got more ahead tonight. Stay with us. 2021 was a big year in terms of racial justice. Here on this show, we've covered that extensively. Here are the highlights from this year in terms of progress on racial justice from a defining verdict to criminal charges, protest, activism, and investigations. It was a verdict hurt around the world. Today, justice was felt. And this is what it looked like. Members of the jury, I understand you have a verdict. Count one, find the defendant guilty. Count two, find the defendant guilty. Count three, 
find the defendant guilty. After 14 days of testimony, 45 witnesses called to the stand. Are these your verdicts? So say you one, so say you all. Yes. And the pleas of one family with a broken heart. Derek Chauvin, 45, former police officer from Minneapolis PD, found guilty in all three felony counts. Guilty of second degree unintentional murder, third degree murder, and second degree manslaughter. America, let's pause for a moment to proclaim this historical moment, not just for the legacy of George Floyd, but for the legacy of America. The verdict wrapping up a trial watched closely across the nation. People overcome with emotion <laughs> and united in their relief. Perhaps none more so than the Floyd family. I can sleep at peace now. Oh, he's back with my grandma again. This is what we prayed for. This is all we ever wanted. We got justice for my uncle. We won. He may not be here, but we won. Say his name, George Floyd. It's a stunning end to a state trial that had national implications. One that played out in this towering courthouse in Hennepin County, Minnesota. A case that for many, came to represent decades of injustice. The death of Breonna Taylor, a healthcare worker who was shot to death in her own apartment by police during a botched effort to serve a search warrant a year ago, was one of the catalysts for a summer of nationwide protests. Now the Justice Department says it will investigate the Louisville Police Department to see if there's a pattern or practice of violating civil rights. Promoting public trust between communities and law enforcement is essential to making both communities and policing safer. The investigation will look at whether Louisville police have a pattern of using unreasonable force, including against peaceful protesters, of engaging in racial discrimination in traffic stops or of illegally searching private homes. It will also look at how police are trained and supervised and how they're held accountable when things go wrong. Both Louisville's mayor and police chief say they welcome the Justice Department's investigation. I think that it's necessary because police reform, quite honestly, is needed in near every agency across the country. With last week's announcement about Minneapolis, this now makes two new civil rights investigations of police departments, and tonight officials say there will be more. In the family's $1 million lawsuit, uh, they also say that if this video were not released, her son, Ahmad, would have been deprived of his constitutional rights. A couple of weeks ago, his killers were held accountable in a Glenn County courtroom in Brunswick, Georgia. Now, there were nine counts for each defendant, one count of each uh, of malice murder, four counts each of felony murder, two counts each of aggravated assault, one count each of false imprisonment, and one count each of criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. Travis McMichael, who shot Ahmaud Arbery, uh, was convicted on all nine counts. Gregory McMichael, who assisted in the murder, was convicted on eight out of nine counts, so he was not convicted for malice murder. And William Roddy Bryan was convicted on six out of nine counts. He was the one who recorded this video. In the matter of State of Minnesota versus Kimberly Potter, 
Court file number 27CR217490. We, the jury, on the charge of manslaughter in the first degree while committing a misdemeanor on or about April 11, 2021, in Hennepin County, State of Minnesota, find the defendant guilty. And the verdict was agreed to at the hour of 11.40 a.m. and signed by the jury person on 12.23.21. On uh, the verdict on count two is we, the jury, on the charge of manslaughter in the second degree, culpable negligence on or about April 11, 2021, in Hennepin County, State of Minnesota, find the defendant guilty. It has been a long, tough, and inspiring and influential year. We said goodbye to many legends like Cicely Tyson, Hank Aaron, former Vice President Walter Mondale, Mary Wilson, CBS anchor Roger Mudd, Larry King, and others. The United States set out on a new space adventure. The COP26 Climate Summit transpired with hopes of salvaging our one and only planet. Activists were persistent in their efforts in terms of demanding action on issues like voting rights, democracy, better pay, women's rights, and more. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Jeremiah Patterson Show, the last episode of the year, this TJPS holiday special, a brief recap of 2021. All right, everyone, be safe, take care, and remember to stay positive and inspired.